Welcome to Hot Plate, the conversations we should be having about our food and drink. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, special guest Chef Suzanne Barr joins us to pick up the conversation on cultural appropriation. I celebrate a milestone, then we discuss a perplexing study before diving into a blind beer date. Josh, now we have a guest in the studio again today. We do! Very exciting. The fantastic chef Suzanne Barr. Welcome. Welcome. How nice to have you. Thank you for having me. And Suzanne was the owner of Saturday Dinette Restaurant and more recently is featured in a documentary called The Heat, A Kitchen Revolution. Yes. Which is out now. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, you know, it's it's really uh, so. It, it still amazes me that the film I, that I had the opportunity to be a part of the film because I remember when Maya first contacted me, Maya Gallis, the director. It was maybe two years, uh, a year before we actually started really filming, and she came in and she came to the restaurant and she was like, "So I'm working on this documentary. It's about females in the kitchen. Would you like to be a part of it?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I'm really busy. I gotta go." And I just like kind of like forgot about it. And she said, we'll be back in contact. And eventually she got back in contact. And then the filming started like a year, literally a year later. Now, we knew nothing of any of the other co-stars um, in the within the chefs within the film. And so for us, it was just kind of like we were just telling our story. We were telling what was happening at Saturday Dinette. We were opening another restaurant. I was then going to the Gladstone. So it was so a little surreal because I didn't know anything of what the film was going to look like, the body, the base, the volume, the the magnitude that it's kind of gaining, the momentum. It's it's so amazing how, how well the film has been doing. And I'm so excited to like to be a part of that and to be a part of history within this film. So Suzanne, we've brought you in today to tackle a, an easy topic. Just a quickie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And back in episode eight, Joshna and I started a conversation about cultural appropriation in the kitchen. And the idea of if one person cooks something that is from a different background than theirs, is it okay? Is it not okay? Where is the line? And we ended up coming up with more questions than we did answers. (laughs) And we thought we need to call in some reinforcements. And Joshna said, I know the woman. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe we start off with, I'd love it if maybe you tell us what you think it is. What does that look like in the context of restaurants or bars or, you know, something like that? Right. So I don't have my Wikipedia definition, nor do I want my Wikipedia definition. But I will start with is actually what's happening for me right now, presently in my life. So I've signed on to a project um, that I'm very excited to be a part of. That's actually um, here in Toronto on King Street East called True True Diner. And I came on initially as consultant to make this restaurant kind of feel more a restaurant, a sit down dining experience. Now, the owner didn't know anything other than maybe what he'd heard from a few people about me, but I have never cooked Italian food. I do not have any uh, cultural identity that I know of to Italian cuisine, but as being a chef and as being someone that is a lover of food and as a person that appreciates food that has influenced me and spending over roughly about two months traveling in, in Italy, I, I thought, yeah, I think I can do this. Mm-hmm. And so I created a menu. And then out of creating that menu came then another conversation and then another a really in, amazing opportunity to become a partner of this project. So this project 
closed the doors as a, as a pizzeria, as a fast casual pizzeria, just this week, and we are in the process of restructuring it and rebuilding it and remodeling it as to reopen as a diner called True True Italian Diner. So I asked the question early in the conversations: How does it feel for you to have a black woman um, cooking as your chef, being named as your executive chef, to now be running this? Italian diner? Right. Like, what is that about? Yeah. Like, one, what is Italian diner? What is an Italian diner? And then two, like, can I really be as authentic as the many, many amazing Italian restaurants that are here in Toronto that have representation on top of representation? What can I bring to it that I feel would actually make an impact that's already not already making an impact in the city? And so I had to go deep. I had to go so deep into thinking about what diner, not diner meant for me and what Saturday dinette meant for me. Right. Uh, you know, how many conversations am I going to be invited to where someone's going to say, how do you feel that you have the right to make Italian food when you've never, one, done it? Two, you are not Italian. Three, you may have spent two months there. But what do you know about the the richness of the, of the people, the richness of the language, the richness of the culture? And I said, because my people, my culture, everything that we are about is as rich as what you're about. So why can't I not? Of course I can. And that just empowered me. You know, it really has empowered me. And this conversation is going to empower me so that I can continue to talk about what my plan is to do at that restaurant. And it not just be this voice of creating Italian food that only speaks to Italian people that only know Italian, that expect it to be what it's expected to be. Because when you expect it to be what you think it is, that's when you you miss the opportunity to to surprise people. So let's talk about the other side for a minute, because going into our initial conversation, my impression had always been, I don't care who's cooking. If you have an appreciation for the food of another culture, you can cook the food of that other culture. And it's quite convenient that we're talking about Italian food because I have an Italian background. And when I go to an Italian restaurant, I don't care who's cooking behind there because it's not going to be exactly Italian food. Exactly Italian food is like what my nonna made, what my tia made. I don't, I don't, I really don't care who's cooking. That being said, when we started the conversation, Joshna did bring up a few examples that made me uncomfortable. So I want to take a moment to think about or to discuss when is it not okay? When you look at the demographics of the background of most kitchens, they don't look like anything that is the cuisine that we are actually focusing or even talking about here. If we heard the story the other way around, where there was some Italian dude who spent two months in Jamaica and was like, hey, man, I got it. It's cool. Me and the jerk. I'm going to open up my own spot. We w- I can feel us being up in arms about that. It's not so much that I would have I would be up in arms about it. I would be very curious and very excited to, to taste where where did he go? How long did he spend and who did he cook with and what is he making and who is he who's working in the kitchen? I think that first I'd want to go and taste it. And then second, I'd be like, OK, well, I would have to be honest. I'd have to be like, it's not my jerk sauce. It's good. Would I come back? I don't know. You know, and I think that that's 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 my only true, honest question or mm-hmm. response to that is that I, I need to kind of, you know, feel out the situation, feel out the vibe, feel out how how he approached it. Like, how do you how is the entrance into your your space? Like, there's so many parts hmm. to your experience yeah. in having Jamaican food and 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 the memories that it brings back and the memories that it conjures for me, because I know when I go to the real jerk 
and on the east end and when i step into that space i immediately get reflect i get transported back to when i was 15 years old going to like the first jamaican spot outside of my own parents house and like eating jamaican food in this little you know spot and we're eating it out of the out of the styrofoam container and i want to make sure that 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 memory that flashback that 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 um that evocation is there and that it's happening because that's part of why I go out to enjoy restaurants. That's why I do what I do as a mm. as a chef and as a restaurateur is that I want to create that same experience for anybody that steps into our space. So where is there a line for you? You said you you'll feel it out. What's yeah. what sort of things would rub you the wrong way, or do you just feel cultural appropriation is not a thing in the oh, kitchen? Oh no, no, I think it's absolutely a thing, but I think that. I don't think that it's a, a thing that bothers me to the point where I will say, I'm not going to eat there because you are of a non-cultural representing the food that you're making. I'm not saying that at all, because then you would probably have to stop eating at every restaurant in the city. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> that's the sort of material that's truth, the, right? That's the truth. Because the people that are, are making the foods in every single restaurant in this city are not the ones that are actually culturally attached to this food. Hmm. That's big, right? That's yeah. a big it's bit of truth. It's the truth. truth. Uh, and it is entirely the truth. I think that there's a respect and there's an intention. Yes. Right? What is in intention your mind? Intention is a very important word to put into literally side by side with mm -hmm. respect. Yeah. There's a way to do it. Mm -hmm. Um and it's, I don't think drawing lines and saying you're allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do this is really the future or the way forward. But to really consider the attitude with which it's being done and, and the, the sort of the loving embrace uh, of, of, you know, and the respect that comes with it um, may be the easiest way for us to navigate this. In my position right now um, with True True, um, True, True Diner, um, and another project that I'm working on, I think it's it's important to be able to really exemplify that to my team, to under to to have the people that are working alongside me understand the importance of the respect and the intention behind the purpose of why a dish is being even considered to be on this menu, you know. And 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 if we're putting this on the menu, is it to say that it's the best and there's nothing else like it? We all want to think that and we all want to believe that. But I think the intention is to evoke the memory and and, and an experience that it's going to be very specific to what True True Diner will become known for and what I have been known for in this city. And 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 it's an honor to to continue to be able to cook and to be able to utilize and have access to all of the cultural beauties that make up this city and to not feel like I have to choose day to day like I have to make this because I said I'm doing this or I have to do that because I'm over here but because of the intention of my love for the craft and my love for being uh, a woman of color in my position I will continue to do this work and to be able to, to challenge and, and have these conversations so thank you guys has there been has there been a time where something happened and you just thought hmm that's not right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, there's, there's been a few times for that. Um, this is my one thing that I'm, I'm not about. And it's not about calling out. It's about calling in. Calling in people to recognize what is a problem and what is not working. Wonderful. And what is inaccurate to what you are saying is authentic, which is not. 
what is missing, what is not being like really considered as something that is so sensitive to race and culture. And when you're speaking on someone's food, when you're speaking on someone's culture, language, customs, traditions, practices, that is when it has to be called in, not called out, called in to recognize. And calling in is about either making contact directly with the owner, making contact with the, 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 the individuals that are in that particular space to ask the questions, to push back a little bit, to push forward, to bring in. Because we are so quick. We are in an industry. We're in a time where it's all about social media and people putting people on blast for doing the wrong thing and not doing, not being conscious, not being sensitive, not being really aware of their wrongdoings or their right doings or their unknown doings. But calling them in for let me help you out. Let me let me recognize. Let me let me point some things out. Let me enlighten you. Let me let me support you. I th- I think I, that 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 feels good to me yeah, being able feels... to talk about it because it I feel the fire inside of me and sometimes I have a hard time really articulating what that's all about. I'm with you. Woo! Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay, Mirella, yes. uh, a little birdie told me that you are celebrating a very nice anniversary right now. I am. Tell us, tell us, what is it? I'm so proud. It's the fifth anniversary of the publication of my award-winning beer book. Woo! The name of the book? It's called Beerology, Everything You Need to Know to Enjoy Beer Even More. Oh, Fantastic. Congratulations. I'm so proud. It's in its fifth printing. It's now available in French and in German. It's won awards. And for it to still be around and selling well five years later to me just feels great. That is a big deal. That is delightful. Congratulations. in celebration of this lovely anniversary, okay, I have compiled a few questions for you. Ooh, a little uh, AMA, a little bit, um, and I have lots of questions about beer. Okay. I am I am woefully uneducated, uh, and you are exactly the opposite. Uh, so, if you will indulge me, sure, with some of these questions, as an expert, is there a popular misconception about beer that you would like to correct? It's not so much a misconception, but here's something that still nags me. Tell me. People who, I'm doing air quotes, don't like beer. Okay. That drives me nuts because saying I don't like beer is like saying I don't like vegetables. Okay. There are so many beers out there. Beer, I think, is the most varied beverage. It can range from, well, now 0% alcohol all the way to well into the 30 30 something percent alcohol it can be dark it can be clear it can be uh, sour it can be bitter it can be any combination of the above it can be sweet it can have any of a range of notes and people who just taste one beer or have a few and decide nope i don't like it Mm. and aren't don't give themselves that opportunity they're missing out it's a delicious beverage don't make that blanket statement look around (sighs) you'll find a beer you love is there ever an appropriate moment to serve warm beer? Are we talking warm or are we talking hot? 
I'm talking warm, like not from my understanding. It's like got to have the cold beer, got to have cold beer. Ah. Right. Is there a scenario where room and maybe it's like room temperature, not that sort of preferred ice cold vibe? Is there ever a context in which that is not bad form? Absolutely. Well, it depends on the beer. So beer, like wine, is divided into different categories, and some categories shine when they're served very cold. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about really crisp, refreshing beers, pilsners, anything that's meant to just refresh and isn't super flavorful. That, those are the beers that should be served cold. And for many years, that's what beer was, right? Um, so that's where that stereotype comes mm-hmm. from. Technically, 7 to 10 percent, uh, 7 to 10 degrees Celsius. Thank you. <laughs> but when we're getting into more flavorful beers, absolutely, you want to have them, I wouldn't say warm, but a little bit warmer and very complex beers at cellar temperature, which is, you know, 13 to 15. I don't think anyone mm. should be putting a thermometer <laughs> in, in, in their beer. Right. But what I usually say, if it's crisp and refreshing, you know, drink it right out of the fridge. If it's a little bit more complex, full flavored, pull it out of the fridge, maybe 20 minutes before you're okay. going to drink it. Or if you're me, uh, pull the second one out when you grab the first one. And then the first one might be oh, a little cold smart. Okay. by the time you get to the second one. Okay, I love that. It'll be the right temperature. That being said, you did mention warm. It is possible to mull beer. If you haven't had mulled beer, it is delicious. Really? My favorite mulled beer is made with apples. It's called lamb's wool. You cook the apples into the beer and the apples disintegrate and it looks a little bit like wool in the beer. Of course. Very traditional English recipe. I've given it my own twist and that's on my website, beerology.ca, if ever you want to check it out. Oh, man. It is delicious. Okay, I love that. Um, Oh, man, I want to taste that. All right. Uh, next question, a bit more serious. Uh-oh. What do you think that women bring to the craft of brewing beer? Is there a female way to do this? That's a tough question. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't like to really get into, you know, women are more like this and yeah, men are more like this, that. which is okay. sort of a, a slippery Mars slope. and Venus thing. Yeah. yeah. I think one thing I can certainly say is that women bring diversity. And the other thing I can speak to from, you know, a a personal experience and what I've seen is more women in the industry brings more women uh, both in the industry and as drinkers. Right. Mm. It's uh, an invitation for women, more women to come and enjoy beer, which I'm seeing more and more. But historically, you know, when I started in beer over 10 years ago, I would go to beer events and I would be the only woman there or one of a handful. And I've gotten many, many comments from women, both drinkers and in the industry, saying that seeing me there, you know, encouraged them and made them feel like they would also be welcome. So I think that's oh, super that's really important. interesting. Yeah. And, you know, what I want to see now is more cultural diversity in beer. That is the that is the next step, the All next right. frontier. So tell us the difference between an ale and a lager. That's a common question. Mm-hmm. The difference between an ale and a lager is in the yeast that is used to okay. brew them. I like to speak from a drinker perspective. I okay. can get into the science of like the temperature at which it's brewed, blue, blue, blue. They're not particularly interesting from a drinker perspective. So what I like to say is that lager yeast, so the yeast that make lager beers, are slow and meticulous. So what they can do Mm. is chew through a much broader range of sugars. So uh, a beer that is a lager that's brewed with lager yeast will be drier, have less residual sugar and a lighter body. Also, yeast, as it is producing, um, as 
it is producing alcohol will produce all kinds of other compounds uh, and the lager yeast will clean up those compounds, leaving you with a very crisp beer ah. that is uh, has a slightly lighter body and really focuses just on your malt and hop flavors. Ale yeasts, on the other hand, I like to say they're fast and sloppy. Okay. So they ferment through a lot more quickly. A yeast is not a robot. It is a living organism. So as it is converting sugar into alcohol, it'll produce other characters that can be fruity, that can be spicy. Sometimes, uh, you know, other notes will come in there and the ales will just leave those in the beer and move on with their business. So an ale will have, you know, as a general rule, a lot more complexity to it, a little bit fuller body. So you're going to get not only your malt and your hop flavors, but a little bit of fruitiness or a little spice or a little something extra. Okay. Now that's the theory. In practice, brewers can manipulate things and the lines are blurred. And at the end of the day, I'm actually moving away from talking about ales and lagers. And it's interesting you should mention this in the context of my book. Yes. Because I think the whole ale lager division comes to us from wine. Wine is so neatly packaged into Mm -hmm. red and white Mm -hmm. wine. And people come into beer and they want a similar package. And I had a very long conversation with my publisher who was suggesting that I divide the beers in my book into ale Uh, and lager. The same. Okay. And... I just feel that is not the most useful way to divide beers. And instead, what I did is I divided them by broader flavor categories. So I have the, the mellow brews that are malty and richer in flavor. I see. Then I've okay. got the refreshing brews, which we touched on right. earlier. The striking brews that have like sharper, uh, brighter flavors, be it acidity or bitterness. And then I have the, um, the brews that are sort of more rich and intense. So I find that um, beer being so complex, as I mentioned earlier, so many different ones to just say ale versus lager, it's uh, it's a little too easy. And not to mention the fact that most beers are ales and just a few of them are lagers. I guess similar to, I guess there's more red wine than white in the I balance of things. Be, yeah. yeah, would be similar in that way. Okay, that's super helpful. Mm. Thanks. I feel like I have a lot of more information now. Uh, could you tell us, last or final run, what do you love about beer? It's delicious. <laughs> it's the flavor. I love that. And I particularly love the way as it warms, it evolves as I'm getting through the glass. It's just delicious. Josh, I was very entertained with this article that you <laughs> forwarded to me about food safety in cookbooks. It's almost like it came from the onion, right? It, it was like, weird to read. It was totally weird. It was surreal. Yeah. I, I, I read it a couple of times, not believing that this is actually where we were. It's based on a study. Right? It's based on a real study. It's like legitimate concern about this particular issue. Uh, so the piece is, the issue is that studies, uh, this study has found that there is what they are determining is an inadequate advice and knowledge about proper food handling and food safety in cookbooks and in written recipes. Right. Weren't they saying that you have to 
tell people in recipes to wash their hands and to prepare their well, food on is, a clean surface. This is what is being this is what they're suggesting, <laughs> right? And that and that cooking times for meats were not accurate to what sort of local public health standards are and that there should be more focused temperatures so that a thermometer can be employed um, and and to mention that if you're cutting chicken on a board that you need to remove that board and wash it and pull up a new board to cut your bread or vegetables or whatever it is. Uh, and that I was completely shocked at the notion that this is the responsibility of a recipe writer. It it just didn't make sense to me. I mean, who's preparing food on a dirty surface and how is that the responsibility of the person who wrote the book? Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And the, the idea that this uh, that this is a recipe writer's uh, challenge or responsibility because the author of the piece that that I connected you to said that, you know, one of the failings here is that oftentimes people who write recipes are not even cooks themselves and they don't have that experience in the kitchen, which is why this information doesn't make it into the recipe words. I push back. I think no. that I, I, I don't think that it's that it should be a recipe writer's responsibility to remind people to wash their hands before they start cooking. The author wrote 10% of the books had risky food preparation directions, namely related to thawing and washing. What would be a risky food preparation direction? I'm I don't. Gonna, I'm going to guess that they uh, understand. Probably tell you they're probably not as much advice to wash things. Okay. Right. Like I remember, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, historical practice around rinsing chickens. Okay. Raw chickens, yes. particularly in a bit of vinegar, right? To there was sort a of, huge hoopla about that a yeah. couple of weeks ago. Don't wash your chicken right. because then you'll get chicken everywhere right. and that's dangerous. Uh, the, and so I, I'm going to guess that, that the, the objection is the fact that the recipe did not explicitly tell you to wash that chicken or rinse this thing or, right? Uh, that's what I'm going to guess this is all about. And I'm not going to lie. Every time I have to thaw meat, I do have a mini panic. Uh, right. I mean, it is. I know it's a thing you have to do carefully There's but i just google it I, you know the, we have yeah. all of the information at our fingertips or you know i'll call my mom completely right uh it's so I, weird I really, that they want that in the book it's so weird and what i really think the issue here i don't think the issue is really unaddressed i think the main problem is that we collectively have such a low level of understanding of how to behave in a kitchen if this is in fact a problem and we are we are getting increasing levels of foodborne illness out of home cooking, mm-hmm. right? Which is what is being suggested here. Right. Then there's there's this our arresting knowledge needs to boost. It's not that the recipe needs to tell you to wash your hands. It's you just need to learn more about how to behave yourself in a kitchen, right? I agree with you 100% there. But the other piece is they're also promoting uh, a decrease in literacy in the kitchen by saying, if you want to know if the meat is cooked, you have to use a thermometer. Hmm, and these books are using all kinds points. of other ways, like looking at like it and understanding and from poking, the texture right. and poke. It's just, you know, w- what if uh, I don't have access to a thermometer mm-hmm. or, you know, what if um, or breaks or my something thermometer else. breaks? Yeah. I need to have other ways to, to check if the I mean, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Food thermometer has changed my life because I used to overcook all my meats because yeah. I was worried. And now I can just pop it in and, and, and you know you're safe. It's still uh, tender. Right. But, but there's still lots of diagnostics around how, how it feels, what color the juices are that run when you pierce the thing, uh, just generally how long it's been in the oven. Right. right. So I would argue that they're they're pushing people in the other way in, and diminishing literacy even more oh, like by that. saying you have to use a thermometer. 
Uh, efforts should be made to educate Canadian chefs on safe food handling oh practices <laughs> so that they can yeah. promote positive behavior messages conducive to promoting food safety to consumers. Oh it's totally I'm, I'm so sad to hear, Josh, now that chefs are not educated. We're not on that educated on proper food, food safety. Handling. I'm sure that's oh, not at all taught in chef school. No, right? Yeah, no. not at it's, all. I'm sure it's all plating. It's all just plating and, and tweezers. And, and poking at meat yes. to see if it's right. ready. <laughs> With no hand washing. Varying stages of golden brown. Again, another fantastic study. The yeah. things they study. <laughs> it's time for a blind beer date. Blind beer date. And I've brought... Another unique product for you here today, Josh. Now, this is out of my cellar. You can see that it's dusty. Oh, oh very nice. And uh, are you able to read the label there? It uh, does. This very sweet level just says quelque chose. Quelque chose. How nice. This is a beer from Quebec. Okay. It's brewed by Unibrou. And what makes this beer unique, as far as I know, certainly the only beer I've come across that's mm -hmm. like this, is it is designed to be served warm oh dun, dun, dun. so you'll see i also brought oh she has a thermos a thermos you have a thermos of hot warm beer i do ah. that's why the bottle is empty yeah <laughs> so hopefully okay. it's still warm this is a great thermos so okay oh so this beer oh. the style is inspired by the flanders red which we had in our last blind okay. beer date but this has cherries in it as yeah, well. that fruitiness. You can see it and you can smell a little bit of the sweetness. And you'll okay. notice when you drink it that the carbonation is gone. That's one of the things that That's happens, what happens when as you, you, warm, when it you warm it up. Okay. Yeah. So let's have a taste of this. Oh, that's delicious. Yeah. Oh, that is really good. Imagine that a cold like, winter day. That is boozy and in. dreamy. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's like a shows. You've got the really warm cherry flavors. Uh, totally. It is but slightly it even, sweet. But it even hits you like a, a toddy. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's very good. Okay. So, so component A of the date is this delicious warm beer. I have brought you mm -hmm. a hunk of double smoked cheddar. Okay. Right? Looking for this double smoked cheddar is looking for love. Mm-hmm. Been hanging out in my fridge for a while, haven't done anything with it, thought, let's take you out and get you some action. Just waiting for the right beer. I think that's really the truth. So can but I ask you, you here? Think? Yeah. I'm looking at this cheese and there's uh it's dark around the edges. Is that from the smoking? Yes. So this is, that's, it is actually smoked. smoked. Like it's not this, infused with not smoke. Not at all. This right. hunk of cheese was put in a smoker. Yeah, I can see uh, And you can see the two-tone on that color there, right? So okay. shall we individually try it and then just see how these two beauties might pair up with each Let's other? Let's do it. Okay. I might have a bite of cheese first. Yeah, yeah. I took a cheese class once, mm -hmm. and um, the teacher, I was just about to take my first bite, and she said, before you taste the cheese... Knows the cheese. Knows the and it cheese. was a huge aha moment for me. I've spent my whole career yeah. telling oh. people, always smell the beer before you taste the beer. And it occurred to me, we should be doing that with everything, everything. we consume. Everything. Yep. yep. Well, this is very nice. Mm -hmm. The smoke is not too intense, but it's playing well mm -hmm. off the sharper notes and of it, the cheddar. Exactly. The boldness of the cheddar balances, like it plays with the smoke really well. I'm not going to lie. I'm getting excited. I have hope oh, for this pairing. There could be some good love here. There was a burst of caramel there. Did there you get that burst? There was totally a burst of caramel. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. It became another thing. Yes. Right? The union. I think we might have found an elusive third flavor. Right? <gasps> it's only our second blind beer date. Come we on. We already found a third flavor. We're doing such good matchmaking. Here's my question to you, yes. though. Is the beer a little bossy? Are we losing the cheese? In in the height of the beeriness of that mm-hmm. mouthful, you still have those funky notes of the cheese really holding strong, right? Yeah. Man, that's good. I know. It's the This is amazing. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> um, the way the the when you have them both in your mouth, the richness of the beer fades and leaves the dryness of the cheese, yes. and then the that dryness. Leaves you, it leaves your mouth screaming for more beer. For more beer, which is the which is the like ultimate in a beer pairing is a thing that pulls you back to the bottle as it would be. Couldn't have been better if it was planned. Cheers. Kelka shows. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the hot plate, rate us or leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hot Plate Pod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to Joshna for joining us today. Hot Plate is recorded at Eggplant Picture and Sound Studios. Our audio engineer is Brad Tigwell. Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. That's a wrap.